I think in, in the sense of sort of how our minds function day to day, we are very much formed, you know, by our conditions. And in that sense, you know, the way that we have to make our living, everything else um, is going to condition sort of our, our ongoing train of thought. I think there is an unconditioned, but in our, you know, my, my Zen Buddhist way of looking at that is that that unconditioned is exactly what everything else comes out of. <laughs> this, um, this matter, this matter-of-fact world, this economy, this everything else is not something separate from uh, the unconditioned ground from which everything comes forth. Hello, I'm Oshan Jarrow, and welcome to the Musing Mind podcast. I am really excited to share this conversation today with the economist and Zen teacher, Julie Nelson. But first, if you're new to this podcast, or even if you aren't, the, the premise kind of underlying all of this is that we're all going to die, right? But in the meantime, the world and life is this massive landscape of potentiality, and we're equipped with this baffling consciousness that enables us to feel what it's like and reflect on that and explore wherever our curiosities lead. And economic precarity functions like, like an anchor that holds us in place in a particular way of experiencing the world in a particular kind of consciousness. And new economic possibilities that I think are becoming uniquely feasible in the 21st century can help stretch out the rope and give us uh, more and expanding slack as we venture out into new ways of being and experiencing and living and co-inhabiting this strange rock during these really strange times. So because of all that, I was thrilled to speak with, with Julie, who has spent her life uh, questioning assumptions both of the human mind through her Zen practice and inside the discipline of economics through a, a really pioneering career in feminist, uh, ecological, and more broadly just human economics. She is an economics professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, a senior research fellow at the Global Development and Environment Institute at Tufts, and a senior assistant teacher at the Greater Boston Zen Center. She is the author of uh, a number of books, including Economics for Humans, and co-editor of Beyond Economic Man, Feminist Theory and Economics, which came out back in 1993 and served really as a kind of catalyzing manifesto for the field of feminist economics. A polarizing question that kind of serves as the, the theme for our conversation that I really found running through her work was what if capitalism isn't the problem, right? Julie points the finger more towards uh, what she calls economism, arguing that many of the ills people are quick to blame capitalism for are actually byproducts of a particular brand of economic theory that has very little to do with capitalism and very much to do with what is known as neoclassical economics and the neoliberal politics that have grown out of that. And moving beyond neoclassical economics and neoliberal politics does not require necessarily, she writes, an exit from capitalism. 
She argues that the things we've naturalized as products of capitalism, like greed and environmental degradation and even patriarchy, are things that we can change within the existing framework. A few other topics that we get into um, are her writing on imaginative rationality, the emptiness or no nature of markets, the question of whether consciousness and materialism are compatible, uh, whether waged work can be intrinsically motivated, and how we can change our capitalist system from within. You can find links and notes and more information on Julie and things we mentioned throughout the episode on the website. That's musingmind.org slash podcast. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help it grow, it makes a huge difference if you'd take the time to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps me not only reach a wider audience, but also entice guests to come on the podcast if they see that people are actually having a good time. Um, You can also share the episode on social media, or if you have the means and really want to support the show, you can become a Patreon supporter by offering a small monthly donation like $1 a month. Links to all that are on the episode page on the website. All right, please enjoy my conversation with Julie Nelson. Julie Nelson, thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast today. Great to be here. So you're both a, a very well-established economist, a PhD, professor, books, papers, um, and also a very well-established Zen practitioner and teacher at the Greater Boston Zen Center. And that a Zen teacher is also an economist, or that an economist is also a Zen teacher, is really an unusual and fascinating mix, right? So I, I wanted to start here and, and ask you how these two parts of yourself, of your life, of your engagement with the world, how these two parts relate to one another, right? Do you find that your Zen practice and your approach to economics are, are quite separate, or do you find that they share some kind of roots? I see them as very close together. I, I think that both Zen and social science in general are best looked at as really deep and systematic forms of inquiry. Uh, they're both ways of, uh, when they're done right, uh, looking at what's going on uh, right here and now. In Zen, we say, you know, don't take anything for granted, don't believe anything your teacher just says. Uh, really uh, dig into it yourself. And that's also how I've tried to do economics. Um, that has cost me some um, <laughs> uh, professional stature and other things in economics, because <laughs> economics tends to be very dogmatic and refuses to look at what's going on now, I would say, as a discipline as a whole. Uh, but to me, the way I do economics and the way I do Zen are, are very similar. Yeah, and that's absolutely shown up, as you point out, in the way that you've done economics. In you, You've questioned kind of the assumptions of, of the field that have left us blind to a lot of uh, important dimensions. Um, yeah, I think, I think the discipline of economics has done a lot of damage, actually, you know, in mm-hmm. the world. Yeah, in, in 1993, actually, you co-edited a book called Beyond Economic Man, Feminist Theory and Economics, that would come to be known by many as a kind of manifesto for feminist economics. And you were doing this especially back in 93 when um, it it hasn't gained the kind of purchase that that we might think it has now. And towards the end of of the chapter that you wrote in that book, um, there's something I'd like to read and bring in here and then pull a few things out and ask you to elaborate. Um, So you wrote, feminist theory suggests that the Cartesian divisions between rationality and embodiment, between man and nature, reflect a peculiarly masculinist and separative view of the world. 
In this chapter, I have suggested that the Cartesian view underlies the prestige given to mathematical models of individual rational choice in the current definition of economics. A richer economics, while not excluding formal models or the study of choice, would be centered around the study of provisioning and make full use of the tools of imaginative rationality. Such an economics would be neither masculine nor feminine, but would be a human science in the pursuit of human ends. And so the two pieces I wanted to pull out of of that synopsis are the ideas of provisioning and imaginative rationality. So beginning with provisioning, uh, the idea that economics should study not only exchange, but provisioning, as you point out, is actually not an original feminist contribution. This goes all the way back to Adam Smith right. um, in, in his view of you know, how the economy <laughs> should operate. And, and then this, this rise of neoclassical economics that is now, or at least was until recently, um, the orthodoxy has a, a masculine bias that has systematically kind of erased the idea of provisioning from that heart of economics. So what is, is provisioning in an economic context? And what would it look like today if in the 21st century we decided to weave this back in as a central tenet? Yeah, the, uh, the, the definition of economics I've used in some of the textbooks I've contributed to is uh, economics is the study of the way that societies organize themselves uh, to provision or to provide for the survival and flourishing of life. Um, and we might add the caveat or fail to do so. <laughs> <laughs> right. A lot of economies don't. Um, but this was, I was trying to think of what is it that people on the street think economists are doing? Uh, I would guess that most of them think it has something to do with livelihoods, how we get along, how we survive, how we get the money to do uh, the things that keep our families going, uh, do the things that we, we want to do. Um, and yet economists, economics as a discipline has uh, uh, tended to define itself around the study of markets and the study uh, or the study of rational choice. Uh, that was a Lionel Robbins 1930s uh, definition about choice in the face of scarcity. Uh, both of these leave out huge areas. Uh, one, obviously, of a lot of concern to feminists is the whole area of uh, households, household work, and care provisioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of economics treats people as a, if they just uh, pop up at age 18, you know, <laughs> ready to enter the, the labor force or make a college uh, uh, work decision. Uh, and, and we don't. The other thing that is you know, absolutely critical to economic functioning uh, that gets downplayed is the whole role of the natural environment. Again, natural resources just kind of appear on the scene and there they are. Mm-hmm. If we paid more attention to what makes us survive and what makes us flourish, we would put our... Um, resource base <laughs> of people hmm. and uh, uh, nature at the beginning. Uh, in fact, a lot of textbooks talk about three economic functions, production, distribution, and consumption. And we mm. added a first one to that, resource maintenance. You know, mm. How do you have anything to produce with if you haven't maintained your people and maintained uh, the rest of nature on which uh, humans depend? Yeah, it's interesting. There's kind of a, it feels like there's been a, an open battle going on for the for the definition of economics. I mean, I'm thinking recently, but you could probably look over the its history. I remember in college, I've, I wound up with Ludwig von Mises's book, Human Action. Mm-hmm. And I had no, no context. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what tradition he belonged to, right. you know. But, you know, in that book, he defines economics as praxeology, as the study of human action. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, wow, what a, what a more broad definition than anything I'd encountered. So, in my mind, you know, von Mises was this progressive icon. But um, nevertheless, it's it's kind of 
it's almost as if what we're trying to figure out is where does economic analysis begin and end? Like, where do we draw the line as to what um, should be included within the scope of analysis and what shouldn't? Mm-hmm. And it, it feels as though a lot of your work has, has suggested that the neoclassical lines that have been drawn are incredibly narrow and the things that we have left out, um, as you say, they're, they're vital. And if we exclude them from the models, they get neglected, which winds up kind of hollowing out the entire discipline itself. Right. I mean, because it's not just a narrowness of focus. If they just focused on markets and analyzed them right, <laughs> you know, I mean, I should say we, because I'm also an economist. I mean, that would be some, that would be a contribution, be a limited contribution. Uh, but the problem is even with focusing on markets or even focusing on individuals and their choices, economists have, have neoclassical economists starting, you know, late 19th, early, early 20th century really, you know, congealed around this image of the purely uh, rational in a logical way, um, Mm -hmm. self-interested autonomous agent and focused on rationality, competition, uh, autonomy, completely leaving out emotions, social interest, having to get along with other people, (laughs) okay, (laughs) and being part of an independent society and interdependent uh, with the natural world. So they took, as I said in that that passage you read, you know, that's sort of the Cartesian model. You know, mind mm-hmm. is the big thing, and we just we know we exist because of our rationality, uh, living off in our heads somewhere, and completely chopped off bodily life. You know how right. we survive. Yeah, which is a perfect lead into imaginative rationality, something you've also written about. And you know, one of the areas of interest of this podcast has been exploring how economic systems condition or play a causal role in in the construction of conscious experience and how new economic possibilities might open up more space for new ontologies, new rationalities, new new ways of organizing and experiencing um, subjectivity. And in the history of, of critique against capitalism, there's a phrase that, that I've grown pretty fond of, economic rationality, which indicates a particular kind or subset of rationality and logic. And folks like Andre Gores and Jürgen Habermas have written that capitalism produces and entrenches this particular form of rationality. And I think we should actually put a caveat after having read your work that that's kind of naturalizing that capitalism will automatically do so. I think there's more room for flexibility. I I have some disagreement with, yeah. Yes. And and I'd love to give you space to, um, but it's against that backdrop, right, that I thought your writing on this form of rationality, imaginative rationality, was was so interesting because you're pointing out how the form of rationality that is fostered by neoclassical economics is just one possibility among many. So, what is imaginative rationality, and especially in contrast to the way that we might be, you know, accustomed to thinking about rationality? Uh, sure. Let me just go back a step and say, like, instead of economic rationality being a particular narrow thing, let, let's call that something like economistic rationality, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> the, the place where I disagree with uh, Habermas and some others um, is the idea that this is automatically created by, say, a capitalist system. So anything having mm-hmm. to do with a capitalist economy automatically uh, leads to that. Um, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think it's economistic rationality in the sense that uh, people who believe that model of individual self-interest rational choice um, have narrowed it down. That's what I, mm-hmm. I call the economistic. Economic rationality, actually to get through your day as an economic actor in today's society requires uh, rationality and sensitivity to emotion, requires getting along with other people, requires mm-hmm. competition and cooperation. The term imaginative rationality, let me explain that in terms of the, the dualisms I think people have put together. 
mm-hmm. say, well, you know, what do people think of as the, as the opposite of science, contrast science with it, that science uh, versus the humanities or science versus spirituality, right. that those are the opposites. I would say actually the opposite of science, well done science is dogma, dogmatism. That mm. well done science is about open-minded, systematic investigation. And that could be open-minded, systematic uh, investigation in a physics lab, <laughs> or it could be in a Zendo, or it could be in a humanities seminar, okay? You can still yeah. have that attitude of really trying to dig in and learn from things, you know, investigate, find out what they are in an open-minded sense. And you certainly won't find open-minded, systematic investigation in most economics classrooms, uh, because instead mm-hmm. what you're taught is a dogma about how humans behave, uh, which is psychologically and socially just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we even see that reflected in in the discipline itself. I mean, so many of the models, especially the equilibrium models that neoclassical economics is based on, was, were taken, I believe, in the 18th or 19th century out of physics textbooks. Correct. And physics itself has well moved on from using those models. <laughs> exactly. They've adjusted, they use complex adaptive systems and so on. And yeah. economics has been very rigid. So I think you're absolutely yeah, right. We're, to we're say. kind of stuck in a Newtonian era, you know, in yeah. the field. It's, it's really quite bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. One of the one of the quotes that you brought in to to describe um, what has happened with the, the process of, of rationality, I really liked. You brought in James Hillman. Um, so you wrote, oh, yeah. James Hillman writes in the Myth of Analysis, quote, the specific consciousness we call scientific, Western, and modern is the long sharpened tool of the masculine mind that has discarded parts of its own substance, calling it Eve, female, or inferior. And first of all, I love James Hillman, and second of all, what a what a wonderful way to put that. But the moment that you disembody logic, which a lot of people will kind of ascribe to the Cartesian mentality, it's it's the moment that you abstract so far away from the actual human world that we live in on on a daily basis that the the economic predictions that you make using that kind of disembodied logic, they apply to a reality, but it's not the one we're living on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of economists think they're doing applied work because they they take a model and call it, you know, nation A and nation B or something like mm-hmm. that. And somehow that's applied. It's applied in some, you know, some reality that's there in the mind. But no, it does not uh, relate to actual actual human beings. Yeah. The the first essay of yours that I read, um, which was actually in a really wonderful textbook on trying to bring together social sciences and contemplative practice, um, you wrote an essay called The Koan of the Market. And in that piece, and also in your book, Economics for Humans, you write about a, a mistake, a misunderstanding of how economics and more specifically how markets work and what they are, um, a mistake that is fascinatingly made by both kind of far right free market fundamentalists and far left kind of a diehard socialist environmentalists. So I wanted to ask you if, if you could give us an idea of what is this mistake that everyone is making? Yeah, the mistake is that a lot of people on the left have believed economists. <laughs> okay, e- economists have, uh, and, and I believe this, you know, the, the economists wanted to be like physicists. Okay, there, there's a real pecking order uh, inside of universities. You know, the scientists, the, the physicists are the, the hard scientists, uh, and economists wanted to do that. Economists also wanted the prestige that comes with science. Uh, scientists also make more than people in the humanities, right? Mm, okay. Yeah. But there was a whole um, you know, ambition there uh, uh, to become like science. 
so economists came up with a, this bizarre model of the economy because they wanted to be like physicists. Uh, but then they've been writing about it and writing about it and telling people that you, you can't really critique it unless you know as much math as I do. Okay, that makes mm. a nice barrier <laughs> to people coming in and crit criticizing economics. So I got a PhD in economics uh, and published <laughs> you know, my first uh, articles in econometric or one of the top you know, mathy economics journals. So I yeah. could say, you know, actually, I know this from the inside. Um, and it, it is true. It's just it's hollow on the inside. Um, but people yeah. outside don't know that. And they say, economists say that capitalism is based on self-interest and competition. And if we don't like what's going on, uh, we therefore must flip over to the other side and build mm -hmm. an economy that's entirely based on you know, social solidarity and cooperation. And that's, that's just playing with the other half of a deck, you know, playing right. a card game with half a deck. You can choose sort of the masculine tough side. You can choose kind of the, you know, feminine, soft, cooperative side. But either way, you're leaving out uh, half of human nature, uh, half mm -hmm. of how we uh, deal with each other. Um, I have personally lived in uh, and, and live in now a, uh, a cooperative house, okay, where mm -hmm. we do a lot of sharing. We do a lot of joint decision making. Um, and I can say from personal experience, even at, you know, numbers of like six to 12 people, <laughs> you know, it can be challenging to do. Uh, yeah. And trying to scale that up to a, to a full society. What I see is a lot of left-wing critics um, in, uh, imagining an ideal society in which everybody thinks just like them. Mm. Okay. Well, you mm. know, that's exactly what a lot of ideologues on the right do. You know, if everybody mm. was just as independent, you know, and as self-sufficient <laughs> as me, right. we'd be in a perfect society. Um, so I would like, you know, people to give up that, that either or that dualistic thinking that says it has to be either one side or the other. Look at some yeah. of the strengths of markets. Um, I think, for example, a carbon tax is a great first step. You know, yeah. it wouldn't take the first, you know, it wouldn't solve the climate crisis, but why not use the market uh, mm -hmm. for something like that? There are people who are, you know, in the capitalist corporate system, okay, who are actually taking far more responsibility uh, than people in the current government uh, in yeah. terms of looking forward to, you know, what are the effects of climate change? How can we uh, stop or, or mitigate that? You know, as well as other ills. Uh, there are you know, creative thinkers in that realm that a lot of people on the left uh, just want to throw away because they're, you know, associated with uh, uh, this system that they believe runs the way economists have told them it runs. Yeah. What, one of the ways that you you referred to this in, in your essays, you wrote that uh, the further assertions about the nature of markets and capitalism is bad economics. It's bad economics, not because it's too radical, but because it fails to look beyond the common myth that there is a particular unchanging, essential, simple nature to our current economic system. And a lot of, of the way that I've read your work over these past few weeks is you're, you're trying to have us, this is almost like Zen instruction, right? You're trying to have us really try to understand and inquire into where we are now, into what is, what is present in the way things are currently construed, and to find that there's actually a lot more space in, in um, our present position than we often give it credit for. Um, so by saying that something like markets or capitalism don't have an essential nature, right? You're saying that if we're criticizing these kind of uh, greedy behaviors and so on, that we don't need to naturalize these, that there are actually things we can do where we are as opposed to smashing capitalism and going to construct a totally alternative system, right? We're not, we're not powerless to affect change. Right. 
unless we overthrow capitalism, we have a remarkable amount of agency uh, within the current construct if we if we tap into it, if we realize that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of different kinds of capitalism, right? There's, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Swedish capitalism and German capitalism look rather different than, you know, right. British or U.S. capitalism. If you look at it over time, things like um, planned obsolescence, you know, making mm-hmm. things designed to break so you have to buy them again, that didn't start until... I think the first, you know, maybe 1940s or something like that. I mean, I remember when a phone lasted decades, right? (laughs) (laughs) I don't. It's not like, yeah, you're right. It's not like capital. And people talk about a growth imperative in capitalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as far as I can tell, that's another belief, a a belief Mm -hmm. that that capitalism has this essence. Uh, And this criticism of essence, I mean, it does certainly come from Zen, uh, my Zen study, uh, one of the tenets of Buddhism is that things do not have an essential nature, uh, mm-hmm. including, you know, you and me. Um, but we tend to, and then I've done a bunch of reading more um, related to my feminist work, that there's a lot of people who believe there are, you know, essences of masculinity and femininity. And mm-hmm. so they're, you know, totally, you know, boggled by, um, you know, queer theory or, you know, non-binary <laughs> children right. that they, you know, right. they have, they, they, they don't understand. Um, but a lot of that, that stuff that's been going on recently um, is really questioning this idea of essential uh, natures in terms of, of gender. Um, and that yeah. same sort of trying to grasp at an essence rather than realizing that these essences um, are creations of our mind. And actually, mm-hmm. if you look at the, the psychology of it, there's some interesting uh, psychology you know, the beliefs and essences are certainly shortcuts, okay? <laughs> mm, <you're laughs> they make it easier for us to manage our social world. If we think mm. there's, you know, men ask, you know, men act one way and women act other ways, that simplifies things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a simplification that, that we have created. It's not something that, that's out there. And so this mm. idea of there's, you know, a, a essence of Marcus or ec- essence of capitalism uh, to grow or to be greedy or to be destructive we can question that, you know, mm-hmm. we can play around with it. We can try different things. It seems like we, we wind up mistaking uh, theory for essence. Yeah, that yeah. We take a construct <laughs> of our, well, it's uh, uh, Alfred North Whitehead, who's, pro- who's thought who's mm. also influenced me uh, process. Uh, and I talked about the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. We think of mm. something and then we think it actually exists out there in the world. Yeah. Right. Uh, even though it actually started uh, as a creation of our minds. Yeah. One uh, one good example, I think, of to, to kind of show and put on display this um, is the misleading idea that, and you've done a lot of writing on this, that firms are legally and absolutely bound to pursue shareholder value and profits above all else. And that's just the way capitalism is unless we overthrow it. Right, um, right. I mean, yeah, when I first saw some you know questioning of that, I actually went back to, I mean, a lot of corporations in the U.S. are... Uh, uh, based in Delaware, and I looked back at the Delaware, you know, uh, yeah. uh, legal codes and, and case law, um, and it's it's really not there. It was really created more again, created more by economists because it it makes a firm a firm uh, is much easier to analyze if it's just a profit function, a revenue function, mm-hmm. and a cost function. You take the difference, and that's profit, and then you maximize that, and you use calculus. Uh, and that's all it is. Um, when a firm is actually a very complex organization of human beings with lots of different goals and lots of different uh, ways it can see or fail um, yeah. in organizing itself to, uh, to achieve those goals. Unfortunately, I mean, economics has, has become performative in some sense. Mm. That is, there are now uh, legal scholars, and uh, I've looked at this, you know, some recently, some 
notable um, cases coming out of a particular judge in Delaware, uh, where they've they've totally drunk the Kool Aid, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so in some cases now, um, life is starting to imitate uh, the art <laughs> uh, of economics, and those judgments coming down. But older judgments that people look at from the 1930s, even through the you know through the 90s, really don't don't show that. And it's interesting, as you point out in your book, right, what winds up driving corporations to pursue profit maximization when they do um, seems to have much less to do with with any inherent nature of capitalism, um, but more powerful or or more causal, perhaps, than any of the legal mandates or any inherent nature are just the incentive structures that we've built. So, for example, uh, tying executive compensation to stock prices, which incentivizes executives to manage their firm in such a way that they drive up share price, regardless of you know what real value it might add to the economy, because their paycheck depends on it. Right. And that's not capitalism. That's a decision that we have made. Yeah. Um, that hasn't always been the case, even within our own system. So, so we have a situation where we believe it's the natural law of corporations to act in this one greedy manner, where in fact, we have a system that we have created of incentives that leads to those outcomes. But then we have an economic theory that's naturalizing the outcome. So right. we think, oh, it's not that we've created the situation. It's, it's just how, that, how it works. Yeah. No, you can trace back a lot of what's gone wrong in um, corporate governance and finance to some very specific legal decisions and, and theories. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. there were some very specific, and I, you know, I can't name this. There's a, a nice book by um, Eileen Applebaum and some other people on this about mm. changes in laws about finance and corporate governance that have really led also to this short-termism, that everybody's just Mm -hmm. looking at quarterly uh, outcomes uh, rather than the long term. But again, it it didn't have to be this way, and it doesn't have to be this way in the future. If we recognize that, you know, no, actually, if somebody's paying you, you do have a responsibility to do your job. (laughs) (laughs) And no, you know, we don't want finance to be tied to, to, to just, you know, quarterly reports. Right. And we can even see this. I brought in an example just to, to show how how flexible and malleable and responsive outcomes are to, to the larger context. In, in 1981, the S&P 500, so the top 500 corporations, spent 2% of their profits on stock buybacks. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's unfamiliar with stock buybacks, it's essentially a, a neat, clever accounting trick where you buy back shares from holders, which drives up the price in the short term. Um, there are marginal cases where you can make maybe a strategic argument for for the value of them, but by and large, it's actually a pretty bipartisan ruling that that they're not healthy for the economy. Right. Where it, so in 1981 they spent two percent of their profits. In 2017, the same top 500 spent 59 percent right. of their profits. Right. And in both in both cases, we were thoroughly capitalist. Yeah. So it was something else driving the change. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of again, it's 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 these uh, these rules and incentives that have been set up. I mean, the yeah. the other one who and I can't remember the dates on this. Because um, mm-hmm. I don't have the numbers in front of me, was uh, back in the 1980s, the average you know corporate executive in the in the Fortune 500 made something like 42 times the uh, mm-hmm. the uh, wage of the average worker in their firm, mm-hmm. uh, and then it peaked at something like 438 times <laughs> at one <laughs> right. point, and then and then came down to like only 300 times, you know. So yeah, you look back at the uh, the you know the the U.S. capitalism of you know this you know '60s certainly and you know even as late as the '80s and '90s, uh, and it was different. It was not as you know grabby <laughs> and uh, and inequality inducing uh, as it has become. Yeah, yeah. All right. So forking to a little different direction. 
um, we spoke about, you know, markets having no inherent nature, um, no essence apart from kind of their complex interrelations with social, political, legal conditions. Um, I think there's an interesting corollary or parallel to to this idea over in the consciousness world in that discourse. So Marx's theory of materialism can actually apply pretty directly to consciousness, to subjectivity, right? Which is by suggesting that consciousness is a superstructure that arises from the base of productive relations in a society, thereby framing consciousness as a purely emergent phenomena from the underlying conditions. Whereas, and maybe you'll you'll tell me I'm wrong here, but whereas in Zen, and I, I might even suggest the broad thrust of contemplative traditions, there's a suggestion that there's a, a dimension of consciousness that is prior to social conditions that is not mediated by the productive relations of a society, of, of one's material conditions of living, but is unconditional, always abiding, always present. And on one hand, I, I just think that's a fascinating question, right? Whether consciousness is fundamental, um, prior, or is emergent. But I also think it's important and might actually carry some practical weight. Um, because if we if we take the fundamental view that there always exists an unconditional and abiding plane of consciousness, then in principle, no matter our life conditions, no matter our material conditions, no matter the construction of the society we live in, enlightenment is always a latent present possibility and material conditions are always secondary. Whereas if we follow the materialist approach, then lived conditions matter very much, not only in terms of how we're living in the social world, but in how we approach enlightenment and how we conceive of and carry out our contemplative practice. Um, You might even be able to say that in the materialist view, you could frame economic policy, and this might be a stretch, but you could frame policy as being a form of contemplative practice in that you're acting upon the conditions that give rise to or that function as the framework for your conscious experience, whereas the fundamental contemplative approach would say that economic policy is secondary and, and certainly less directly important to one's own project of, of cultivation. So, and, you know, of course, you being someone who has spent countless hours both in, in meditation and researching the policy, I thought it'd be fun to, to kind of ask you about this back and forth. Do you feel yourself drawn to one's perspective or the other? Um, I think I've got a, a fundamental problem with, with the question as you posed it. But I, I, Excellent. I, <laughs> I, I will get around it. Um, I think in, in the sense of sort of how our minds function day to day, we are very much formed, you know, by our conditions, um, mm-hmm. in sort of a you know an evolutionary sense over the long term. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, psychological research about our you know our wetware. You know, our our brain our brains did not develop to think logically about things. Our brains mm-hmm. developed to help us survive. Um, yeah. So if we jump back when we see something in the path in front of us, and it turns out to be a rope. Okay, that's not logically rational, but it's survival rational. If we think it's a snake, right. you know, we jump back first and then we look. So, um, and in that sense, you know, the way that we have to make our living, everything else um, is going to condition sort of our our ongoing train of thought. Hmm. Now, you juxtapo- juxtapose spiritual practice and a plane of consciousness as uh, something somewhat opposed to material. And that's where I would differ um, a bit. I think there is an unconditioned, but in our, you know, my, my Zen Buddhist way of looking at that is that that unconditioned is exactly what everything else comes out of. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. In Zen, we re- 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 recite the Heart Sutra, which is, uh, says, uh, uh, form is exactly emptiness, emptiness exactly form. 
Yeah. Um, and in a sense, this emptiness is this unconditioned that you're talking about. And form is uh, the leaves on the trees I'm looking at, uh, you know, the feel of the earbuds in my ears as I, as I talk to you. <laughs> I mean, that this, this, um, this matter, this matter-of-fact world, this economy, this everything else is not something separate um, from uh, the unconditioned ground from which everything comes forth. So um, in that sense, I'm sort of agreeing with both sides. <laughs> um, I guess I'm, I'm not agreeing with, well, I'm not agreeing with either a pure materialist sense, uh, stance or a pure somehow transcendence uh, away from here mm -hmm. sort of spirituality. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking at a spirituality that very much uh, includes exactly um, our economic life and exactly yeah. our physical life. Yeah. And, and I, one of the, my favorite kind of ways of, of breaking through that frame that I, I gave to you, the, the kind of very dualistic frame of either spirituality or materialism. Um, I forget who it was. There, there was a book, The, the Enchantments of Maman, which is kind of a, a view of capitalism as religion. And the author, I think it's Eugene uh, McCarrer, he wrote an essay in Aeon Magazine, and he, he plays a lot with Simone Weil and, and her writing. But the, the idea is that if you create this contrast between, you know, either we have spirituality or we have materialism, you're adopting a kind of dogmatic view of, A, what matter is. And, and the way that he uses Veil to kind of move beyond this is, you know, Veil talked about um, an enchanted materialism, Yeah. right? So in, in a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, uh, people like Charles Taylor have written about this, you know, we lived in, in what was an enchanted world, right? right? We saw the world as alive with causality, with spirits, with intention. And then we went through a process of disenchantment. You can go back to Weber for that, mm -hmm. where we, we began to locate kind of the locus of agency and animism within ourselves and and the world became an inanimate right. kind of you know thing um and, and what Vale suggests and i think this is so fascinating is that first off we have to have the epistemic humility to admit that we mostly don't understand anything at all have, <laughs> yeah right? that's a good you start <laughs> that's that's a starting point we have theories we have ideas you know so on right. but we don't know what matter is right and right. and we know this because our theories are always changing and so Vale's spirituality is absolutely connected to this kind of unknown state of matter that, and you know, you can, a lot of people will point to things like uh, quantum physics and, and quantum superposition to say like, look, you know, matter could be much right. far stranger than we understand. Right. And our spirituality could be, as you say, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness and form. These two things are made of the same substance that we just might not be able to grok uh, intellectually, rationally at the moment, but right. um, they come together in ways that you know, we have to allow space for. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with the, with the writers you talked about, but but I came across similar ideas in um, uh, Alfred North Whitehead uh, process mm. uh, philosophy, process uh, theology. Actually, came out of that. I believe his book uh, Science in the Modern World uh, goes into that. But again, yeah, and there's some books written by people in that line about the re, re enchanting. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, bringing back uh, and and you know, I thought of it in a you know very literal sense that. Um, you know, there are iron molecules in my blood. There are iron molecules in uh, that rock. <laughs> what, what is it that makes it? Because I am actually matter, you know, I'm actually the, yeah. this body. Um, so is, is there, you know, a real dualistic, you know, sentient, non-sentient, animate, inanimate, you know, matter, mind there? Or is there some kind of, you know, much more complex 
you know, continuum and difference of appearance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yet not, not a dualism. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because <clears throat> the process, a lot of people who write about disenchantment, so I'll, I'll go back to Weber again, it, it was written about in a, in a very economic context, right? Weber's writing about capitalism, the spirit of capitalism. And I, I remember, I think you'd written something on your personal website, uh, something like, yeah, this is where I'm at in my career, in my life. I have gone through the, you know, the economics profession and the discipline. It might not be looked upon positively to write about these squishy things you know, <laughs> that I'm going to get into here, yeah. but but I'm however old and I'm just going to do it. Right. <laughs> and you know, what's so interesting about that is where I find my like the questions that I really feel drawn to pursue and explore too. It, it's about juxt not juxtaposing, but bringing together questions of of economics and policy and theory, mm -hmm. and, and and this process of reenchantment. Like, right. what could these have to do with one another? Yeah. And it's strange to me that that's still, that has a bit of that taboo feel, right? It's kind of like, oh, that's okay, but you're not doing economics. You're, you're some hippie on the left. Right, right. right. It, it's, it's strange to me that we could have such a, a firm view that of, of the historical process of disenchantment being bound up in economic forces. And yet there, there isn't wider discussion about the process that a new economic approach can play in, in re-enchantment. That seems natural yeah. to me. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, I mean, th there are several things going on here. One appeal, I think, of the simpler dualistic uh, sorts of modes um, is that they're simpler. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you really, you know, if you got one of these these dogmas going on, um, you can see a path to your, you know, ideal free market future or your ideal, you know, utopian socialist future, um, and you don't have to. Um, deal with some of these complexities. Yeah. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I wish I knew how to, you know, inspire <laughs> mm. <laughs> more imaginative <laughs> rationality and inspire yeah. more creative thinking because a sort of re-enchantment really does require some sort of uh, inspiration, some sort of willingness to look past, look beyond, uh, drop what you think you know. And dropping mm. what you think you know is very scary. Right. Right. For a lot of people. And um I think you and I both see the <laughs> advantage of starting out from that position. Uh, but I'd have to say that uh, a lot of people don't. A lot of people yeah. want to stay with what they know. So, something that has happened, um, at least over the past 50 years, um, as you know, public trust in government has tanked, as you know, what meager growth there has been has hardly done any good for anyone but the upper class, it seems as though we've lost a, a coherent and shared sense of what progress is and whether it's actually occurring. Um, you know, we've gone from from what seems like in my read of history, I wasn't alive, so it's all speculative, but it seems like in, in the early mid 20th century, you know, we all bought into a kind of positive and prosperous vision of the future. And by we all, I'm, I'm referring to the yeah, US here. Guilty. I'm, 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 you know, I'm of a generation that lived through that and I certainly right. grew up with that. Yeah. Yeah, and it feels like there's been a transition where now you know we're we're just managing crisis after crisis and and trying to get by as as economic precarity is kind of replacing prosperity as the norm. Right. And I wanted to run something by you, an idea or a framework. I've, I wrote about it recently, and I'm I'm trying to flesh it out. And I'm just trying to bring back a notion, by no means a new one, of, of what progress is and how it can show up in the everyday life of ordinary people. And it's really just a rehash of ideas that economists have had before, but the basic idea is that one way to understand progress is by decreasing the amount of time that any citizen is impelled by necessity 
to exchange on the market in order to access the basic resources, the basic provisions they need to survive and to, to be a basic participating member of society. And as you can decrease the amount of time that citizens are impelled to exchange by necessity um, in order to afford their rent, their healthcare, their groceries, education, debts, you know, all these basic tenets of, of modern livelihood, if you can move from, for example, needing to labor 40 or so hours a week to maybe 30, 25, you, know, you open up more time, something that, that I refer to as time ownership. Uh, someone else was referring to it as time freedom, but it's for people to gain the real optionality to do something other with their time than sell it, right? To act in accord with other values than those that might be recognized or well compensated on the market. You're gaining more freedom over what to do with your time and how to allocate it. And as that number decreases, we, let's let's go back to Marx. We'll call it the the socially necessary labor time to maintain a basic life. Um, more time opens up for intrinsically motivated activities, and I've actually explored on the podcast before with people like uh, historian Benjamin Honeycutt. This was largely the idea in the in the late nineteenth and earliest twentieth century America, right? That the working week would keep decreasing as we had more and more innovations in labor productivity, and we'd all wind up with more leisure time, and that'd be a great thing. Um, but we've certainly gone a different direction, at least since 1980. So I wanted to ask you how you see this narrative. If you see a potential or value in its revival um, to this kind of commitment to decreasing the amount of time, you know, we all have to spend laboring or do you have some some concerns about that? Uh, I would say that I share a um, some of the values, I think, from that that's coming out from. And I think the main value is, is to, to, to recenter the economy on human well-being. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So getting back to that provisioning uh, sort of thing. Yeah. I, there are there are two points where I would disagree and and really want to look back into that. Uh, one is you, you um, the sort of notion that when you accept a wage, you're you're selling your labor, you're selling part of yourself. You're kind of a wage slave. Mm. Um, you mentioned that that if we minimize that, we leave more time for things uh that we're intrinsically motivated for. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another dualism. <laughs> mm, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. You can work for a wage and be intrinsically motivated at the same time. Um, these don't have to be opposites to each other. Now, a lot of wage labor, you know, the way our economy is constructed right now, uh, doesn't offer that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, even in in you know jobs that you might not think were all that that interesting, uh, people people will go to work because they know the product uh, helps other people. They'll go to work because uh, they feel camaraderie with the people they work with. Uh, mm -hmm. Whatever. I think this. Uh, I think you've gone a little too far in Marx in this in this idea of uh, <laughs> of wage slavery because really, I mean, wage work is another way in which side, societies can organize themselves to get things done. So it's yeah. not like all time lost. And, and let me mention that the, one of the ways I, I got really interested in looking into this was uh, because of caring labor. I mean, this mm. is a big area of interest uh, for feminist work. And if you if you believe that you know wage labor is people are just working for the wage, you know they kind of leave the rest of their humanity behind when they enter their workplace door. How do you find? Um, Good childcare, <laughs> mm, right? Good, right? Good paid childcare doesn't exist, okay? But if you yeah. actually look at what motivates people, there is, there is a phenomenon that's often pointed to of crowding out of intrinsic motivation by pay. That sometimes mm. if you pay for something, you know, say uh, blood donations, you know, if you pay for blood, then people, you know, donate blood less or think of it as just another commodity. Sometimes that can happen. 
Um, and that happens when you sort of take away people's intrinsic motivation. But it's also possible for pay to uh, reinforce intrinsic motivation. If you pay a childcare worker well, which would be a big change, right now in the US, right. uh, childcare workers make less on average than parking lot attendants. Oof. You get paid more for watching a car than you get for watching a child. Uh, but if you pay childcare workers well, not because you know they they meet some kind of target for number of diapers changed in a day, you know <laughs> that would that would crush out intrinsic motivation. But you pay them well because they are good and helpful and are you know really contributing to the raising of children. That reaffirms their intrinsic motivation and also keeps them from leaving the job in disgust and going to work at McDonald's because they can make more there, right? Yeah. Um, so you actually can reinforce intrinsic motivations uh, with wage labor. So I do agree. And I, I mean, when you think of things like uh, negative income tax or universal basic income yeah. or other ways of trying to give people uh, support, um, please also remember that you know, things like uh, sliding scale subsidized childcare uh, would do a lot for uh, workers that just, you know, that just wages <laughs> do not do. Uh, and also think, you know, so, so basic entitlements for healthcare, basic entitlements for education. Um, yeah. A lot of those things could be done uh, at a social level, I think, more effectively uh, than simply trying to do it all through through income channels. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. My um, <clears throat> my mother is an early childhood educator. She uh -huh. she works with children who are like twelve to eighteen months old, wow. and you know, criminally underpaid. Right. And just from a, a human, not even from an economic standpoint, it doesn't make any sense to me. If if you want to make the human capital argument, you can that you know these are the times in in children's lives when we should be giving the highest quality care we can possibly give them for for any variety of reasons um if we decide that you know we value we value child care that would be wonderful right. if we decide that we just realize you know how formative those years are and into the yeah. the kinds of human beings these will be so on and so you, you touched on this a little bit with basic income negative income tax or kind of uh, sliding scale approaches how do we how do we go about increasing the wages of those I, I don't think this is a contentious statement that you know child care should be paid more teachers should be paid more um so on and so forth. And one of the one of the approaches is, you know, boosting uh, labor's bargaining power. And this is one of the so one of the lines of, of support behind something like basic income or negative income taxes. You'll, you know, the argument goes that you're giving workers more bargaining power to turn down an exploitative contract, which will force employers to offer better wages. Do do you and, and you mentioned, you know, we should be cautious not to put all of our eggs in these baskets of, oh, if we just give everyone a big basic income, all those problems will kind of work themselves out. What are the other kind of leverage points or touch points that that we should be thinking about, maybe on a policy level, to to get those wages up in places that we can kind of broadly agree they should be? Um, let, let me let me before we get into the policy level, let me touch back at, at the th theoretical level. Is that um, the sort of you know wage slavery uh, <laughs> minimize the time working for extrinsic benefit? Uh, mm -hmm. Vocabulary is one of the one of the things that has to go. Because mm. uh, one of the justifications people have given for um, paying low for things like childcare and other caring professions is uh, is this this idea that that if you paid them well, they'd just work for the money. Uh, in fact, there were there, there were two articles published in uh, health economics journals uh, that claimed that the way to get good nurses was to pay them less, uh, because that's the way you make sure only altruists take the job.
<laughs> that if you paint it <laughs> yeah. well, you would get these right. selfish people entering these caring occupations like childcare and nursing. And, I mean, right. that's that's just nuts, right? Yeah. Um, but it's it. If you tie this idea that you know that people work for wages only for the money, um, it has that that kickback on on caring labor. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of, of policy, it really comes back, you know, ultimately to to this idea of uh, the economy being, I mean, serving people, right? Um, and if we really look at what makes people function well, you know, things like early chair, child care and education uh, have vast payoffs. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they, there have been you know a few cost benefit sorts of of, of studies, but um, yeah, investing in in children and there's very few economists. Uh, Heckman is is one of the the few who you know have actually looked at this and said, hey, we're you know we're vastly under hmm. uh, under investing uh, yeah. uh, in children. Um, uh, Barbara Bergman wrote a book. Uh, she's she's now deceased, uh, but she wrote a book about you know what it would be like to have you know federally you know, highly subsidized, uh, high quality early care and, and education. And it's actually a tiny fraction of things like military budgets or transportation budgets, right? right? right. Um, but it means saying, okay, you know, we need to maintain, you know, our children, at least as well as our, you know, parked cars <laughs> right. and, our, and our roads and our, and our missiles. Um, yeah. But we have such a you know, a society in which all of this soft stuff is supposed to take care of itself, right? The mm-hmm. military budget comes first, the transportation co- budget comes first, uh, health, education, childcare, those are those get the leftover funds. Um, yeah. And we, you know, we, we got to switch that around. If we if we put, you know, human welfare at the center, uh, yeah. that's not the way we go. And I remember uh, if this really becomes clear and, and frustrating when you look into the, the price tags on some of these things. I remember uh, th- there was a big report that came out recently. I forget the the um, people who put it out, but it was through the government. And it was, it was the largest report on how to reduce childhood poverty in, in years. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the, the really, um, on one hand, common sense. On the other hand, this is pretty radical relative to the existing kind of economic methods. Uh, the, the biggest component of their proposal was a child allowance, which uh-huh. is quite simply, you know, for children <laughs> whose right. families are in poverty, give the give the parents some money. Right. Um, and if you did that to the degree, I think their measure was a child allowance that would cut pov- childhood poverty in half would have cost about uh, fifty billion, uh-huh. and you could universalize the child allowance to go up to a hundred, maybe two hundred billion, um, to eradicate childhood poverty. Right. And then you compare that to the military budget, which is up around eight hundred billion. But not even that. I mean, we have we have federal tax programs like the mortgage interest tax deduction, the real estate tax deduction, which are essentially programs to help Americans build wealth that wind up essentially helping the already wealthy build right. more wealth. <laughs> and if we just eliminated these, we would yeah. uh, cut childhood poverty in half. It's really yeah. strange that that's a radical idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it's you know, it's especially dramatic if you look at say the U.S. military budget compared to the budget, military budgets of every other country in the world. Yeah, right. It's, it's just, yeah, it's gone way out of line. Yeah. I, oddly, a little ironic footnote here is, is the best childcare system in the country. I mean, most extensive, you know, most recently priced uh, is a military in the military. <laughs> no way. <laughs> the, the military has figured out that if you want to have people come up to work, you know, you know, worried about their work rather than their kids, you have to supply them with quality childcare. So military bases have some, some of the best in the country. Maybe, maybe an optimistic look at that is as we've <laughs> seen in the past, you know, all the technological innovations that start in the military generally tend to, yeah, to yeah, so you know, spill off <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> they trickle down. Uh, yeah. All right. So 
One theory uh, that I've been particularly fascinated with recently was um, Eric Olin Wright, who was a, a sociologist at the University of Wisconsin. He passed away recently, but he had a theory of change um, where specifically you know, he advocated against what he called smashing capitalism mm-hmm. and rather um, wrote about taming and eroding capitalism from within. And th- he uses this language, I think it was couched in an essay in a book called How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century. So we might have our, our qualms with that. <laughs> but I, I think it's interesting. It relates a bit to the conclusion of, of your essay, The Quantum of Markets, I think. Rather than, than getting sucked into this dualism you know, where there exists one greedy capitalism and our task is to construct an alternative outside the system, it's more interesting, more radical, and more feasible to ask, you know, how can we operate from within the system to foster change? And right. the way that, that Wright frames it is that you use social democratic policies, like we've been talking about, child allowance, a negative income tax, that lighten the harshest corners of capitalism to give people some relief. And in those spaces that are opened up by relief, we are more free to engage um, in alternative ways, alternative relations with each other, whether non-capitalist, post-capitalist, anti-capitalist, new capitalist, whatever. And as we engage in those ways of being, if we prefer them, if they work, we'll want to expand them. And so we'll fight for more social democratic reforms, which open up more space, which allow us to devote more of our time and energy to these alternative ways of relating that we prefer. And as the process unfolds, we begin to erode the hegemony or the, the dominance of the status quo from within, which kind of drives this more organic means of, of change and evolution. So in, in your view, how, how can we best engage with the system as it is in order to find and create these kinds of spaces or these ways of engaging that, that do invite that, that kind of change? Or a better way to put it is, what are some of the leverage points inside of our particular capitalist form we have now that that you would like to see us focusing on to, to open these spaces and, and allow the, the change to kind of come forth from the bottom up? Um, there are a lot of, you know, whatever space you're in, <laughs> there's something to be done. I mean, there, there yes. are obviously things we can do as, uh, you know, voters and uh, people who can advocate for various kinds of uh, government policy changes. Uh, there are, um, you know, progressive um, people within uh, uh, corporations and business groups, you know, trying to figure out how we're going to work with climate change, what we're going to do about, mm-hmm. about inequality. Um, I know some people on the left have difficulty believing that, but, <laughs> you know, they actually are humans in there and, you know, and there, there are values and there are, you know, there are people most of the time when, when, you know, say a consumer boycott of a company succeeds, uh, mm-hmm. it's because there are also people on the inside. Um, yeah. that we're advocating some of those, those same things. So we certainly need to still do things like, you know, boycott firms that are particularly uh, bad about it, uh, but don't demonize, uh, uh, you know, everyone inside in the process. Um, yeah. You know, education, I've been, you know, mm-hmm. I've mentioned some textbooks I've worked on because, you know, economics, education, um, econ 101 is taken by so many students across the country and it teaches as an economic agent, you're supposed to be self-interested <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, right. uh, and ignore the, the well-being of everybody around you. And, you know, that's a, a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. That's really what, what people come out uh, thinking. And so, you know, working on transforming uh, education, uh, working on transforming uh, the media, what comes out in the media. Um, a lot of business media has thoroughly swallowed, you know, the Kool-Aid of this, you know, profit maximization stuff. Um, yeah. You know, so, yeah, counteracting these messages that say, 
you know, I mean, that, that are dualistic in the sense we've talked about, or, you know, that are greed yeah. only, or, you know, got to just detach off into some spiritual realm and forget about matter, you know, <laughs> right. all of that stuff yeah, needs to be challenged from, you know, wherever someone is. Um, yeah. And, you know, if, if what you're doing is raising small children and, you know, fighting for all day kindergarten, okay, you know, you're, you're doing your part at that, at that level. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was actually a product of kind of this this process of education you talk about, and I, I agree, it's so important. And it's I'm so happy to to hear you've you've authored all of these textbooks. Um, when I was in college, I, I had my degree in economics, and oh dear, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You know, I went in this like starry eyed freshman who thought, all right, I'm going to learn how the world works, and we're going to make it a better place, and so on. Yeah, I, I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I just went through this four-year process of absolute disenchantment. By, by senior year, I, I was so, because my, my department was relatively um, orthodox, very biased onto econometrics. Uh-huh. I didn't read a word of Marx. I didn't read any Keynes even. Oh, yeah. um, and then I had a degree in economics. It was wild. And so after I graduated, I, I decided to totally leave economics behind. So I, I said, oh, no, not for me. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, I went out to, to Asia to do the meditation thing. And it was only by accident that you know, I've told this story before, but the the used bookstores in India specifically were a really interesting kind of source of education for me because on one hand, a lot of travelers left behind spirituality and meditation books, but one of the other kind of most popular um, genres left behind were, were cultural studies and economics. Huh, and you can imagine, you know, the people of that ilk were leaving behind some some pretty heterodox stuff. Yeah. Um, so I began to see, oh, there there's a, another angle to to come at all this from. Right. Um, and actually on, on that theme, there was a question I wanted to ask one of the kind of methodological aspects of neoclassical economics, uh, you know, the set of assumptions that's guided the field for the last number of decades is that it, it extricates itself. It removes itself from the process of human development. So economics takes no responsibility for shaping or forming people's tastes and you know, preferences, or even what we believe value is, right. um, by saying, you know, price equals value. Um, and saying that you know whatever price someone agrees to upon a, in a market is a good signal for the real value of that thing. What we managed to do was kind of rid ourselves of an otherwise centuries-long debate as to what value actually is. Right. And similarly, um, economics has kind of removed itself from the the process of development that that factors into why people make decisions in the market in the first place. So we treat tastes and preferences as exogenous to the system, to use the the jargon. Right. And what I find a very kind of compelling critique of, of capitalism, and this is coming out of a lot of people like the Frankfurt School, um, it, is that it, it seems to play a very causal role in shaping our preferences and sculpting the environments through which we develop our tastes and our sense of, of preferences and value. I mean, especially in, in the digital variety we have today, where we're always exposed to different economic incentives. So, Well, you, you use... Yeah, I think e- e- economism. <laughs> the, the, right. you, you use the word capitalism there. Let, let, let me right. let, let me replace that with economism because because there there could be capitalism with far less advertising, right? Mm, yep. uh, Adam Smith's capitalism did not have billboards and you know media coming at you every minute of the day, right? Right. Um, I mean, not that his ca- I mean his capitalism has slavery. <laughs> you know, it's not. <laughs> right. It is. It isn't like you know. But there are. You know, I mean, again, there are, are a lot of different varieties. But this sort of mm. economism or this you know particular neoliberal version of capitalism. Yeah. E- economists have, have preached something and then stood aside as though, you know, our preaching has no effect. And that's what I, I said. It's, it's, I mean, it's becoming performative. You know, like judges mm, yeah. are starting to use University of Chicago, extremely conservative, you know, economic logic. And that's where, you know, I mean, economics, 
yeah, it does. It does change the world. It changes the way that, that people think. But I would again, I would I would not ascribe that to capitalism as some some big force. It's actually about particular thinkers and particular ways that that thinking gets uh, adopted and spread around. Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite ways you referred to this in in some of your writing um, was the the mushroom man oh, yeah. theory. <laughs> Uh, you, this is really wonderful. So you wrote, uh, at the center of mainstream economic modeling is the character of the rational, autonomous, self-interested agent, successfully making optimizing choices subject to exogenously imposed constraints. In adopting this conception of human nature, economists have carried out the suggestion of Thomas Hobbes, who wrote, let us consider men as if but even now sprung out of the earth and suddenly, like mushrooms, come to full maturity without all kind of engagement to each other. Economic man, and this is you now, springs up fully formed with preferences fully developed and is fully active and self-contained. And you go on. I think this is the most important part. The environment has no effect on him. This is the assumption, right? But rather is merely the passive material over which his rationality has play. Economic man interacts in society without being influenced by society, which is a really strange premise to have. So the question I, I wanted to drive at was, what would it look like, or is it possible, what would it look like if we actually reflected this in our methodology? I know we've been beginning to over the past couple decades. Could we do something similar to kind of bring the the influence over tastes and preferences and human development into the economic system? What, what would that look like in terms of how economics operates? Can we model that? You mean within the discipline? Yeah. Well, I, I've got a great example, <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> okay. e- economists have been influenced by society and social norms all the time, mm-hmm. right? And we will continue, we, we will always be because we are human beings, but we have tried to ignore that, right? Mm-hmm. We've tried to pretend that we are detached scientists, <laughs> right? And, right. The ti- yeah. and this is the whole image of science. There was a great um, literature in the 1980s of feminist critiques of this particular notion of science as detachment, mm-hmm. um, rather than as, you know, systematic investigation from whatever, you know, vantage point we're at, knowing that we're at a, that at that particular vantage point, you mm. know, uh, embodied uh, knowledge uh, from a particular place rather than denying that. But the, the, the example <laughs> is that there's a whole economics, uh, behavioral economics, uh, that's kind of the cross of economics and psychology, a whole literature on gender differences and preferences. And there are a whole bunch of claims coming out that uh, men are more competitive than women, uh, men take more risks than women, a bunch of things about uh, social preferences and, and other stuff. And I decided to look into this. I looked into this claim that um, <laughs> <laughs> that women are more risk averse than men. And you said you yeah. did a lot of econometrics, right? So yeah. this is actually going back. And you know, certainly ec- econometrics is you know statistics on steroids or statistics <laughs> right. you know adapted for particular economics context. And so there were all of these econometric studies, some of them experimental, some of them using survey or uh, things like stock market data, uh, that claim to to find that um, men, women are more risk averse than men. Are you aware of the p-hacking controversy? <laughs> in, in Vaguely, yeah. And, uh, rep- this, was, this was, what was going on was pure p-hacking. Um, right. Confirmation, this is just like manipulating data, right? Manipulating data. Well, actually, it's manipulating data till you get the result you want, and then it's only publishing that uh, which has has agreed with your belief of how the result should be. And that's science. Right, and that's science. So what I did on the series of papers that I then turned into a book uh, on this was looking back at the supposedly rigorous research that came up with this definitive result 
<laughs> and that it turns out that the best estimates of the difference between men and women in risk-taking, and this gets a little nerdy, is about a mm. tenth of a standard of deviation between the means. Which is very little. Very right? tiny. It, it means <laughs> that, you know, if, if you had to, you had a man and woman in front of you and you, ha- and you didn't know actually their gender and you had to guess which one was more risk averse, you'd have a 50-50 mm. chance, right? If you know their gender, you now have a 53% uh, chance mm. of guessing correctly. You know, I mean, it's just, wow. it's just tiny, right? Um, plus a whole bunch of literature showing the opposite had not been published. There's a way mm. of using statistics to figure out what you should be seeing in the literature given a certain parameter value out there. Um, And when you don't see that in the literature, it means things have not not been published. So in terms of methodology, it's not a matter of trying to insert some, it's, I mean, it's not that the econometric methodology was wrong (laughs) per se. It's not that the the rules, you know, the, the, the central limit theorem has changed somehow because we have social influence. Uh, But the way that we have used statistics and econometrics, we have been using them in ways that just communicate our own biases and our own social mm. beliefs that we grew up with. And I, I, don't, I, I don't tend to think we can get to, to necessarily to objectivity in our mm-hmm. quest for knowledge. We can try to get to reliability, mm. <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> so, yeah. something, something that's good enough to go on. Uh, and the best way to get to re- reliability in science is not to rely on one particular method, but to make sure that you have as open and and as critical a scientific community as you can have. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I think that you know I could find this particular bias in this literature, uh, partly because you know I was a woman who grew up being s- skeptical about these stereotypes about men and women, and so right. I took another look. Yeah, we we can't yeah. just rely. You know, it's it's not physics like methods like econometric testing. You know, right. they get us to reliable knowledge. It's the whole shebang. It's the whole social construction <laughs> of knowledge and the way we interact with each other to check, you know, check each other's privilege, check each other's biases. Yeah. I love the way you put it. Uh, you, you put it in, in one of your essays that the problem with economics isn't that it's too objective. It's that it's, it's not objective enough. Right, right. It's, it's, got, it's t- entirely one-sided and, and fails to look at, at, uh, at all of this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe as we head towards something of a direction of, of, of winding down, there was uh, a reflection on your website on, on a blog post that you had written that, that really struck me. And, and oddly enough, it was something I could relate to pretty intimately. Um, you had written, um, I also recently retired. And the question, how do I live my life came up more rarely when I had a routine, when my time was taken up with things I was working on and working towards. When the structure disappears, what do I do with myself? And I had, a, I had something of a similar experience on the other end of, of time, I guess, uh, when the structure disappears, right? When, when I graduated college, as I mentioned, you know, the norm was by September of your senior year, you're interviewing and you begin to accept job offers by January. And as someone in the economics department, I just couldn't find a job that struck me as, you know, ah, yes, this is what I should do next <laughs> <Yeah>. with my life. <laughs> so I, I wound up not making any plans. I didn't, I didn't sign any contract and, and graduation rolls around. And I was sitting on my porch after the ceremony. Um, and my, my two roommates were kind of packing up their bags and they had a month off before they were going to go start their jobs. And, and I had absolutely nothing lined up and it was the first time in my life. It was really unfamiliar experience Mm -hmm. and intimidating because I had no structures looking forward to, to contain any of it. Right. Right. I didn't just have a month off. I had uh, what is it? (laughs) And the the weight of that is huge. 
Um, yeah. You know, so the, the question, you know, what do I do with this mess? What now? And right. I'm very thankful that I had that experience. Um, you know, it, it was a total fluke that I did. And even though it was terrifying, even though it was difficult and there was anxiety, it also let in this this wide sense of, of possibility, this kind of expansive scope that I don't think I would have had if I hadn't had that time. Right. So I, if you're willing to talk about it, I wanted to ask you in, in your experience what this was like when when the structure disappears, right? How do you grapple with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I get, there's very much that kind of sort of end of the di- high dive <laughs> <laughs> feeling. And um, this has happened more than once in my life. I at, In 1997, I both... Um, was uh, denied tenure and divorced at the same time. So I had mm. to reinvent. And that's actually when I started meditating. Wow. Um, I found that meditation, um, even simple meditation helped with panic. I could watch panic uh, rise wow. and fall. Uh, I certainly, I mean, we're talking during the pandemic and I'm sure a lot of people have had this, you know, end of the high dive experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like, you know, fortunately it sounds like you and I have been able to, you know, keep ourselves fed <laughs> right, right. You know, in spite of this. So we're, we're not hitting that, that, uh, that, uh, that problem as severely as some other folks, but yeah. in terms of sort of kind of the you know the the psych the psychological and the spiritual effect of of what do I do uh, with my life? Um, it was actually more than just retirement. I, re- I retired due to um, some annoying health issues. I seem mm. to have some kind of it's probably an autoimmune condition, post viral kind of thing. But anyway, leaves me fatigued and pained a lot of the time. So I wrote an essay which is on my blog and also uh, published in Tricycle, uh, a Buddhist Hmm. magazine called um, Sick and Useless Zen. (laughs) Because I've spent so much of my life trying to get things done, (laughs) you know, (laughs) uh, trying to accomplish something and to actually settle into, okay, what what is my life when I'm not being um, uh, productive? Yeah. Uh, And it's, uh, and also, you know, and, and and for me, it's it's not only when I'm not being productive, but I'm also in pain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, right. what is this? And the Zen practice has been hugely important in allowing me to to, uh, to not take this personally, mm. uh, not take you know pain as the universe's revenge on me for something I must have been you know guilty of at some point or something like that. <laughs> um, when you look at it from you know the larger perspective, the perspective of this sort of larger consciousness we were talking about that is not conditional. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, pain arises in various parts of the world. And uh, sometimes at two in the morning, uh, it arises uh, at my address. <laughs> <laughs> Comes uh, knocking. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's not about me having done something wrong or, you know, uh, be, for much, much of my life, I felt very guilty when I rested. You know, I should be energetic mm-hmm. all the time. Um, actually not. We have a, um, one of the things that, that actually drew me into Zen practice was a piece that we uh, read at all of our liturgy services called the, three remem- the, uh, the Five Remembrances. It mm-hmm. starts out, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. And a lot of people find that depressing. I actually find it liberating. It means as those things happen, you know, it's not something I have to stop. <laughs> yeah. It's not something that I have to feel uh, guilty about. And I can be on that edge of, oh, okay, you know, this is my life now. This is my life now uh, being older. This is my life now, you know, not being as healthy. Um, and every step is a new step. You know, sometimes it's off the high dive. <laughs> we tend to forget about the high dive when we're just plodding along the ground. Uh, but we never know when that ground's going to just open up in front of us again, right? Yeah. Um, we're always just taking that next step. Yeah. And I, I think especially, 
you know, what I can see from where I am of, of your life, it's such a wonderful model of kind of speaking against, you know, the trope that contemplative practice is a process of detachment, you know, right. where if you're going to meditate for yourself, you're turning a blind eye to the material conditions of the world. And you've done exactly the opposite, which was, you know, you've, you've deepened your engagement with, with this unconditional space while at the same time, very deeply engaged with making the material world a, b- a better place. It's, it's possible to use, you know, any kind of spiritual practice as escapism, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, right. But I, you know, I think if you go into it deeply and you, you know, really investigate, it brings you back uh, exactly, you know, to your life where it is. Mm. Well, I, I want to thank you for your work. Just in this process of of reading over and speaking with you, I think you've really helped me think about a lot of the terminology I use um, and which, which makes such a big difference, you know, it really does. Uh, So I'm going to carry that with me. Anything else lingering for you? Uh, No, thanks. You've been an extremely uh, informed and and lively person to talk to. So I've enjoyed this very much. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for hanging, for joining. Thanks. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you would like to learn more about Julie's work, I have links to her books, essays, website, all up on the episode page. Uh, you can find that at musingmind.org podcast and clicking on Julie Nelson. If you want to stay up to date with the podcast and new episodes as they come out, you can sign up for my newsletter, which is also on the website. There's a, a tab that says newsletter on there. I usually send about one or two letters a month, including new episodes, new essays, and things like that. And if you'd like to get in touch, I'm active on Twitter, or you can contact me directly through the website. I'm always happy to hear from people and, and what they're thinking about the, the episodes or otherwise. And uh, that's all I got. I hope you're all doing well through these absolutely surreal times. And uh, I'll talk to you next time.